TSO Pop Season 4 Episode 5. Hello and welcome to TSO Pop. My name is Laura and joining me today to talk about reflective practice is lecturer and teacher trainer Matthew Gordon. Matt has worked in English language teaching since 2010 in a variety of roles including as a teacher of general, academic and business English, academic manager and teacher trainer. He is currently based in Shanghai and is working as a lecturer of English for academic purposes and a freelance teacher trainer. He is interested in various aspects of academic writing, learning transfer in EAP and reflective practice in teacher training. Thank you for your time, Matt, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In today's episode, we're going to talk about reflective practice. We're going to discuss what reflective practice is why it's essential, and most importantly, look at practical ways in which we can integrate reflection to support our ongoing learning and development as teachers. Today's topic is relevant to so many educators, whether you teach ESL, other subjects, or work in other education-related roles. I guess then, Matt, a good place to start would be to define what reflective practice is and why we're talking about it in today's episode. There are two very influential definitions, one coming from Dewey in 1933 and another coming from Schoen in 1983. These two definitions remain very influential, even though they were formulated quite a long period of time ago. It's very rare that you'll read anything on reflection without reference to one or both of these uh, definitions. Um, So the first one, Dewey's, it's related to investigating uh, the basis of our beliefs and how they affect our actions, and in particular, how based on evidence they are. The second, uh, Schoen's definition, emphasises more the relationship between reflection and practice, and especially how reflection can guard against uh, repetitive and unthinking practice. It's quite easy to see how these two definitions remain so relevant, even after such a long period of time, because it's self-evident that there's a benefit to teachers of basing their beliefs and their practice on evidence and constantly looking to change and refresh their practice. So the definition which I've used uh, in my own teacher training is looking to combine kind of the, the most important elements of these two definitions. And the way I word this is the questioning by a teacher of their own pedagogical beliefs and practice with a view to altering that practice. Moving on to the importance of it, it's uh, I would always believe that the, the real importance of reflection lies in the way that it gives teachers a toolkit to be able to develop independently by themselves according to their own needs and priorities. Um, if we think about in English language teaching, those initial four-week training courses, the CELTA and the CERT-TESOL, in such a short period of time, they can't fully prepare teachers for every context that they might end up teaching in. Um, think about the different contexts that people might end up in, teaching with young learners versus teaching business English, teaching online versus teaching face-to-face, one-to-one classes versus very large classes. So such a short course can't fully prepare a teacher. And then when it comes to in-service training, it's often lacking. And even when it exists, it's usually based on the needs of the institution and not the teacher. 
So what reflection does is it gives that toolkit to teachers to be able to take ownership of their own development. Watson Lawson actually call any teacher training without a focus on reflection a restrictive apprenticeship. What they mean by this is that teachers develop that basic skill set but they don't have the tools to develop further by themselves after the course. You've summarised so well the definition of reflective practice and why it's so important. So let's now move on to the how. How can we reflect effectively? Do you have some tips? It's quite a nice outline of what reflection can be. Okay, as Warden McCotter's dialogic reflection, and this is broken down into five elements that effective reflection should have a focus on students, Uh, It should integrate other perspectives. There should be an element of ongoing inquiry and there should be leading this inquiry should lead to new insights and ultimately a change in practice. So if we think about this for as original definitions, by focusing on the students and engaging in this ongoing inquiry, teachers are looking for evidence about the effects of their teaching approaches. By looking to get other perspectives on an issue and reach these new insights, they're making a change in their beliefs about teaching. And there is that effect on practice, which is the end result of the process. So this is kind of a quite a nice way I think of looking at what useful reflection can be and there's a process which I've used on courses in the past which uh, allows for this so the teacher will immediately after the class formulate a problem or a question uh, and this would be based on an observation of students during the class so an example of this could be why do students respond badly to my concept checking questions um, they then get other perspectives on this. So obviously on a teacher training course, this is going to be through things like formal observation feedback from a trainer. Um, But in other contexts, it could be, for example, an informal discussion with either peers or mentors or even students themselves. could be from things like books or the internet, or there are many different ways of getting other perspectives on a particular issue. And then in the final stage, they consider all of these different alternative perspectives, compare it with their original beliefs and their original practice, and then they draw some form of conclusion or and or uh, formulate questions that they would like to explore in the next lesson. So an example could be, how will students respond if I only ask open-ended concept checking questions? Similarly to the second stage, this final stage can be done in many different ways. So again, on a, on a teacher training course, it's most likely through some form of formal written journal, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. And many teachers obviously won't have time to write 500 words after every lesson. So it could be things like mind maps, could be drawings, could be something like a coffee or a discussion with a critical friend that happens once a week and talk them through this. So here's what happened in my class, here's what I read, and I'm thinking of trying this out in the next lesson, I'll let you know how it goes next week, that kind of thing. Could just be simple things like an audio recording on your phone, taking notes on online tools like a Padlet or a Google Drive, or just quite simply just looking out the window and thinking about it while you do so. And I think kind of the methods that each person chooses will be very much depending on their personality. So if you're perhaps more internally oriented, you might prefer reading and then thinking or writing. But if you're more externally oriented, you might prefer discussing it with other people. So but there's a lot of options to choose from depending on your own time and personality and all those kind of factors. 
I really like how you mentioned um, that you could do audio notes or drawings or mind maps, because as you say, um, when you're teaching, it's busy, it's chaotic at the best of times, um, but it doesn't have to be like a huge thing. Like you can take just a few minutes at the end of a class or the end of a day just to sit with your thoughts and put down a few bullet points. And I think it's wonderful how we can use different uh, technology or resources to do that and maybe experiment with different ones. I've been trying microblogging lately mm. and I found that's really worked for me. I think when I did sessions on this in the past and I would ask teachers, let's say, what's stopping you from reflecting more effectively than you could? And the biggest one that always came up was just a lack of time. And I think because reflection is often seen as this very formal thing that has to be written uh, in a journal or something like that, that it puts people off trying it just because it seems like such a big undertaking in terms of time. So having perhaps simpler and quicker uh, ways of doing it is only beneficial, I think. Do you have any examples of reflective practice in use and the impact it has had? So when I moved from teaching relatively small classes of about 12 students to larger classes of about 38 students, I'd always been right from the doing a CELTA when we were taught to do this, that the way you take feedback is that you do pairs and then you do a whole class feedback. But this just didn't work in large classes. When you do that, you have one person talking and 37 people sitting and waiting for them. So I wanted to kind of keep this thing where students were able to share their ideas with the class um, and with their peers, but to make it work in these larger classes. So I, I guess I went through this process. I'd already formulated this problem. And then the way that I got other perspectives on this was read up on uh, people who taught larger classes and some books on the subject about how can we effectively teach large classes and experimented with different uh, approaches for eliciting feedback. And in the end, I came up with this uh, class within a class system. So you'd have groups of, let's say, seven or eight students within the class who were a little mini class for sharing feedback. So first they'd share with their partners and then they'd share with this, uh, this, this other group of seven or eight students. And while they were doing this, I'd go around monitor and then perhaps share some interesting things I'd heard with the rest of the class. And then another example is, uh, it goes back to what we were talking about related to the last question, where through this process of reflection and perhaps being a little bit more objective and scientific about the way that she was approaching her teaching, one trainee mentioned that she'd shifted her focus at the beginning of the course from trying to teach that very perfect lesson to uh, turning the classroom into, she had a very nice phrase for it, she called it a test land. And what she meant by that was that she saw each lesson as a chance to experiment and grow and learn as a teacher. And I think this is really important because this can only have a positive effect on the learning environment if the students can see that the teacher is trying out different approaches and trying to grow and trying to learn new things. This can only be very motivating for the students, I think, and especially so if you involve the students in that process and take their opinions on board as well. I love that example you just gave of that trainee seeing each lesson as a test land. That's a, a lovely analogy. So as we close this episode, what would be your top tip? First is to be quite focused and to do it with a purpose. So choose a topic that interests you or investigate something that has been a particular issue to you in your classes, but make it quite a strong and narrow focus. So for example, don't word a question like, how can I help my students get better with grammar? 
but try and make it a bit more focused than that. For example, how can I help my students to become more accurate when doing free speaking discussions? Second, it's really important to get outside perspectives. So again, this could be from colleagues, managers, trainers, books, or the internet, or of course, podcasts like this one are a great source of, of that too. Uh, this is really, really important because if you're just reflecting within yourself, you're kind of stuck with those ideas that you've carried through from wherever you've got them in the first place. But getting these outside ideas, it can really give you the opportunity to weigh up alternatives and then make a decision as to which approach you want to follow, and which approach is appropriate for the context that you're teaching. And I think this is a... Kind of a misconception with reflection is that it's very internal and only based within yourself. But actually, in order, in order for it to be effective, you do need to kind of get some outside perspectives as well. And the third thing is, I think this we've really touched on quite a bit already, is to see the lessons as a chance to learn something new. And I think it's also very important how you word the questions. So try and word them in ways which will help you to experiment and to try things out and to look at results. So, for example, what would happen if I did X? How would learners respond to Y? Try those things out and then use the results as a chance to learn something. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really inspiring talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about these things. So if you would like to read more about Matt's ideas, research and experience in reflective practice, then you can find his two articles on the topic in the May and June and July and August issues of Modern English Teacher magazine from this year. Details of these and other articles can also be found on his LinkedIn profile, and I'm going to hyperlink his name on the website so you can connect with him. As always, if you have a question or an idea to pitch, then you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or the website, tsopop.com. If you love what we do at Tsopop, then you can support us by posting a rating review wherever you listen to podcasts, sharing content with your teaching community, or by even sponsoring our coffee break at ko forward slash Tsopop. We'd most certainly appreciate that. <laughs>